how amazing that there is somebody who I met, I had in my life, who created me, who left in the worst circumstances, but left me with like the sort of best like memories and upbringing. Like I can't, I would be a real fool to just like completely waste that. Hello and welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with me and Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove and show that regardless of whatever daddy issues you have or you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised, heard and confronted. If you like what you hear, please feel free to rate, review and subscribe because not only do I love hearing all your feedback, but more importantly, it gets the podcast to more ears and the more ears, the merrier. So please do have a wonderful listen with yet another incredible guest. In today's episode, I am speaking to the wonderful Jack Rook. Jack is a writer, a comedian and a mental health ambassador. At the age of just 25, he has already presented his own BBC Three documentary series, Happy Man, the BBC Radio 4 comedy, Good Grief, and was also BBC Radio 1's on-air expert in bereavement and mental health for The Surgery. On top of this, Jack has also produced three standout Edinburgh Fringe shows, Good Grief, with his 85-year-old nan about his father's death, Happy Hour, a comedic tribute for a friend lost to suicide, and Love Letters, a show about modern romance described by The Guardian as effortlessly charming and buoyantly funny. Jack's shows have been such a success, they've transferred to London Soho Theatre, which is one of my favourite theatres, Latitude Festival and The Roundhouse. In 2019, he contributed an essay to the award-winning book It's Not Okay to Feel Blue, and Other Lies, curated by Scarlett Curtis. And finally, and very excitingly, his debut publication, Cheer the Fuck Up, is just starting its book tour and is out now to buy. So get his book. Get his bloody book. Cheer the fuck up. So, um... Oh, oh yeah, so am, I nice? pressing, am I pressing record? Oh, you've done it. Yeah. This is so clever. <laughs> and, but Isn't it? I, I, are you, is it recording you as well? It looks like it's just recording me. Yeah. It records locally, so it will. So even if there is a little internet glitch, it will just record me on my side and you on your side, so it sounds the same. That's fantastic. Yeah, it is good. But are we chatting? Are we video chatting through Skype? Is that what it is? So we're video chatting through Skype, but the recording will be Zencaster. Uh, do you know what, Angharad? I'm already very <laughs> impressed by you. So I did a podcast with. Um, I don't know if you heard. Well, you might do because you're obviously in the comedy world, but they're called Dragony Arts. Oh, my Lord of Lords. I just did an episode of Dragony Arts on Comedy Central. So did I. Oh, my God. Wasn't it like the most fun experience? It was so good. It was so, so good. We did a seance. We decided that the theme was that I needed to tell my nan finally that I was gay. But the issue was is that she was dead. So we did a <laughs> we did a seance and brought her back. We did like a Ouija board to tell her I'm gay. And it was absolutely bonkers. But yeah, they're fantastic. Did you actually do a Ouija board? 
we did like a fake one of Amazon Prime that the production company bought. <laughs> That's so good. Is this the nun that wrote that you that co-wrote Good Grief? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the ending of my first show was always that the whole show was called Good Grief and it was all about my dad dying and it was mm-hmm. all about how I dealt with that as a 15-year-old and how my nan dealt with that as an 80-year-old. So it was like the elderly and youth perspective. And then we sort of talk about grief and how it's affected us. And uh, it was just, it was only me on stage with a coffin full of um, comfort food, a coffin full of like sweets, <laughs> basically, and crisps and slices of saurine malt loaf. Um, and and then I would just play projections of my nan in the background. And then, so yeah, the whole show for the first 55 minutes, it's me and my nan. And then weirdly, this is real life. After I did the first show for the very first time, uh, my nan then passed away a week later she actually went into hospital after the first night yeah which was mad and so then when when she passed away she sort of left me with this show that I had just developed and was thinking should I take it to Edinburgh and then took it to Edinburgh and then the ending was that she's also passed away but it was a much more sort of happy felt much more of kind of like celebration of her life in many ways if that makes sense so yeah so it was like it's like two deaths in one it was particularly nice to perform that show because it was looking at my dad and looking at grief and bereavement from both of our experiences but every time I performed it I also got to like hear her voice again which was so nice it was so nice to because you know like she was really struggling with the absence of my dad she was struggling with like losing her son and I think that's probably the one element of grief that people really struggle to talk about you know it's the wrong order so to speak um and so yeah so she she sort of it was really lovely because she loved doing the interviews for the show because she loved talking about him and remembering him but then by her talking about him and remembering him when she then you know passed away I loved it because I got to hear her talking so it was this like lovely kind of like cyclical you know life death remembering celebrating like I got to celebrate her by celebrating him which was really nice I think as well it's kind of why me and my nan related because you know, you're not supposed to lose a parent at 15. You're not supposed to lose a son at 80. So we kind of bonded because people were both very, very kind of awkward with us in that sense. And a lot of that is actually in the book of that kind of, you know, that feeling of that kind of, of kind of being uncomfortable, especially when, when you're 15. I mean, I, my, I, my dad passed away just after I turned 15 and so to and because me and him were so close I mean we were we had a really great bond he was like my mate like we used to go out every weekend I'd go here and there with him he was a black cab driver he was a really sort of like Mm. get up and go kind of dad you know he always took me places me and him I'm, I'm the youngest child of three and he was about 40 when I was born so he'd actually sort of lived a life by the time I came along and he just really kind of like took me under his wing in a weird way I mean I know he's my dad so it's sort of strange to sort of say it like that but he was just like he was just like a friend he was somebody I could kind of be like silly and naughty with as well and um (laughs) and yeah and so uh, and so when he passed away he passed away very very suddenly of cancer um what we were left with was 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 still was like me going from 15 to adulthood very quickly almost overnight and 
the issue was is that to everybody else though I still looked like 15 year old Jack I still looked like a kid I was still a constant reminder of like the kind of tragedy of his loss and I sort of write that in the book I kind of felt a bit like a statue at times like I reminded everybody of a time before because I still looked like that. Whereas everybody else, weirdly, I don't know, I think maybe when you get past like 25, like grief really ages you visually. A big grief certainly does. Yeah. Whereas I just still looked <laughs> like, it. you know, I was entering year 11. <laughs> Yeah, sorry to say, any 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 over twenty fives. Not only are you going to be in the worst X factor category, you're also going to look like a ball bag if somebody dies. Um, a real, real. Just start moisturising. Sorry now, to let that's you know. I say. Yeah, exactly. going to give you that extra extra forehead line. I've got like seven. I've My got forehead loads. is so wrinkly. Yeah, I've got a wrinkly forehead too. These bloody grief lines. <laughs> Actually, there's a mirror next to me. I've got one, two, three, four, five. I, there are five <laughs> lines on my forehead. I am a 26-year-old male. Like, there should be one. There should be one emerging line, but I've got five thick, sad lines. But I also quite like them. Sometimes I'm like, they do, they A, make my face more expressive, and B, I'm like, yeah, I've lived through shit. You can yeah. see it on my forehead. Well, it's... Like, <laughs> tell us about this amazing exciting book that's just coming out well (laughs) so I am very conscious that being 26 and writing a memoir is a fucking joke am I allowed to swear on this podcast by the way thank god because it's a fucking joke (laughs) I I feel sometimes like oh my god how self-indulgent to be one of those like millennials at the same time though I'm like it's a book for me that I think has a kind of dual purpose it's like a lot of comedy writing about grief mental health sexuality it's a lot of funny stories sort of sad stories but then I kind of try to wrap everything up with really kind of concrete advice and tips and like stuff that I have learned Mm -hmm. to basically like give people options so I always think those things that are really difficult in life whether it is losing a parent or I don't know divorce or you know any sort of any anything that's really going to upheave your stability mm-hmm. the, the what you just need in life is options you just need to not feel like so scared that you can't either a help anyone or b help yourself um so i've kind of written the book from that angle it's it's a kind of guide for both people going through an experience but then it's also a kind of like friendship manual it's like how best to help someone who's going through these shit times written by someone who's a kind of been that friend and b had that friend um and you know i think i think for me i just wanted to write something that didn't feel like a very kind of clinical sentimental mental health book you know i think like the mental health uh conversation so to speak certainly in the last like five years has become this sort of very like meme-esque like boiled down to a kind of hashtag that is obviously very important because it's important you know to say like time to talk and it's Mm -hmm. okay to not be okay and blah blah blah. but they those sort of taglines or or certainly I feel like the mental health conversation has kind of like did like not it's got like no nuance to it whatsoever it's Mm -hmm. just like talk open up you'll feel better end of and it's a bit like it's too simplified for me and 
and it's too simplified for the people that I know and that I love and for the people that I've lost as well you know it we need to be actually saying yes it's it is time to talk and it's important to talk but here are the tools to help those people on the other end of those conversations here's the tools of how not to be scared to have those difficult chats here's the tools of like how to try and help someone without it feeling like this kind of hollywood style intervention here's how to like be around somebody bereaved and to be sensitive and basically i think the worst thing that anybody can do when somebody is struggling is nothing even if you perhaps get it wrong in my mind that's better but i think when you tell everybody it's time to talk and it's time to open up, there is just this overarching fear of getting it wrong and of saying the wrong thing and making things worse. And in my mind, I'm like, we've got to get rid of that fear because that's where help doesn't happen, if that makes sense. Completely. So I kind of hope, I hope it's a book that is like, first and foremost, funny and makes people laugh. Um, I I mean, there are really sad bits in it, but I I just really want it to have a kind of function of giving people options, basically, of things to say, things not to do, things to do, like funny things, sad things, but just like, I guess, to kind of get people to get over that fear, that fear of not knowing where the line is. And the issue is, is that, you know, it's an individual thing. It's like an individual basis. Some people need a lot of more care and attention and support and then some people do literally just kind of want to be treated like you know normal every day like it's it's I think it's about I always think it's about like striking a balance of like ensuring that your friendship or your relationship with that person doesn't change so like if you were if you were I don't know the sort of friends that only like dropped in on each other every now and then then like you don't all of a sudden need to like be in that person's life 24 7 you know I've had some friends slightly overcompensate sometimes and I've just been like (laughs) don't worry I'm all right (laughs) um but and and it all comes from good intentions you know and I think I, I in the book I I do get slightly critical about the mental health kind of industry because I I do sometimes think it's become like this huge kind of you know it's strange how many people are kind of profiting from from misery in many ways the the one benefit I think that has come from it is that it has made people genuinely want to care more for one another it has made people understand and recognize that it's okay to say to someone you know are you okay can I help you is there anything you need like and actually that's something that I don't think in Britain we've been particularly good at in the past. And so, and I don't think that we were particularly good at it when my dad died, which was like back in 2008. I'm not sure when it was for you, but like, it's amazing the difference that has happened in the last like six, seven years. And in the book, I'm quite honest that I'm not like a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist. (laughs) Like I have no actual like psychological training, but I guess like, in my mind, I'm somebody who has lived through those experiences. And, you know, I I lost my dad and I lost a very close friend to to mine when I was 21. And, and I've kind of been through a lot of grief. But then I've also put a lot of that into work that has meant and performance and comedy that has meant that I've had chats with so many different types of people, generationally, like, gender like like I've spoken to lots of people who've been through similar experiences and I also have like quite long term since I was about 18 volunteered at a charity called Calm mm-hmm. um who are a suicide prevention charity 
stands for the campaign against living miserably and like just volunteering for them over the last like eight years has been an amazing way of just like figuring out I guess people's coping mechanisms and how they do cope with all of the difficult things that we face in life whether it's relationship breakdowns or you know death or like coming out or you know your gender identity like so much stuff that can actually lead to people being in a really bad way you know I, I feel like I've been able to put really personal insights in rather than you know a kind of psychological perspective because I think like I, I you know I, I can't really start telling people you know the ins and outs of CBT and how it works but I can be like try CBT mm-hmm. and if CBT doesn't work try other talking therapies like trial and error keep on going type thing so you starting to volunteer for calm that was before you were 21 and you lost a very good friend to suicide so why do you think what drew you to volunteer at calm I think, I mean, I started volunteering with them. I just turned 18. I was in my first year of university. And I was having a bit of a tough time at uni. Like, my dad had only passed away about three years before. And I found it, I was the first person in my family to have ever gone to university. So it was a real culture shock. It was like a, I didn't quite know what to expect. Um, And... But also at the same time, it was such an amazing experience because it got me out of that kind of grief bubble that I had been in after dad had died. You know, it it gave me a kind of chance to have fun again and to like figure out who I was other than just like bereaved and worried about everyone. (laughs) And so, yeah, and so I had a bit of a tricky time my first year of uni, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like I was overly depressed or I was overly hating it. It was more just like I had to find my feet again. I had to sort of find my who I was and I started volunteering uh no I had to do some volunteering because I was on a scholarship I was like one of the lucky kids that were like we're gonna pay for your fees but you just have to like do 40 hours of volunteering in the SU and in our student union they started they started stocking a free uh mental health magazine which was the calm zine which was made and produced by calm and it was like a tiny little free zine mag type thing that had like lifestyle and culture things in and like interviews with bands but then it would mix in stuff about like bipolar uh, depression anxiety ocd and like it was trying to kind of get young men in particular more in touch with their emotional intelligence and their own state of mind and I just like fell in love with it I was like this is so exactly me and I was studying journalism and so I I went to Carmen I was like can I make my like end of year project about you guys and they were like yeah come in to the office and meet us all and so I was expecting to go into this like incredible like media suite type place where charity workers and people were like just sort of discussing how they were going to take over. And Calm was literally just like five women in an office that smelt like feet. It was literally spearheaded by this incredible woman called Jane Powell, who really, I suppose, the real ethos for Calm, and it's something that I say to a lot of men, is that we've got a lot to thank feminism and these women in particular for was that, you know, we only we will only help both genders by sorting out what it is about masculinity that is so damaging and what it is about how we raise men differently and what it is about how we approach fatherhood differently and, like, 
tackling that sort of stuff is 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 going to help both or well all genders essentially it's going to help everyone and it was so amazing and i just fell in love with it and they were just such a great bunch of women who were just like and this really was when male suicide in particular was not as spoken about as it is now it really was a taboo subject and yeah and so i just fell into volunteering for them and then writing bits for the magazine and then I deputy edited that magazine like kind of two three years down the line and yeah and they just sort of really were like a bit of a lifeline for me not necessarily that I benefited from their services or their helpline as such but just they they made me feel like I was able to articulate the experiences that I'd been through with grief and depression and like being quite confused about my sexuality and they gave me a a way to write about that and for that to feel quite cathartic um and yeah and actually you I mean it's a strange one isn't it because you know I I knew about calm before I had been I had actually been personally affected by a suicide and they were a suicide prevention charity and my friend Ollie I met at university and he was in the year above me and he was also studying journalism and he knew all about Calm as well. We would like host fundraiser, like comedy, poetry, music gigs for them. And we spoke quite a lot about mental health. And I'm not sure about you, but whenever I speak to men or fathers who talk about suicide or sons, they always sort of say, oh, I never knew he was struggling. I never knew he was in a bad way. Whereas in my case, I knew that Ollie had had difficulties with his mental health. I knew that he'd been misdiagnosed bipolar borderline personality disorder he 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 was he he was open about it he was quite limitedly open he didn't really give full details but you know I knew there was something up and so when you know he did very sadly take his own life it was both not a surprise but also like the biggest shock I mean it completely floored me because in my mind I thought God, I'm an ambassador for a male suicide prevention charity and I have just lost a male friend to suicide. It made me feel quite sort of guilty, I suppose. And those natural feelings, I think a lot of people, when you are bereaved by a suicide, you feel, you feel that kind of odd, what did I do wrong? How could I have helped more? Like you ask all those what if questions and those what if questions, like a big part of the book is me saying like, they're bollocks. It's never, ever your fault. It's just not like, and and so for quite a long time, after doing like four or five years of volunteering for Calm, I really felt like I needed to step away from it and to step away from talking about male mental health. And I kind of hid for a bit because I just felt kind of sad and a bit guilty. And then in my mind now, this book is kind of me, I suppose, like finally actually ready to talk about it yeah. and to share that experience and to share... I suppose the tips and advice that I've got from speaking to so many different people over the past eight years mm-hmm. and just making it as like honest and personable as possible, whilst also hoping that people like find it really funny <laughs> and a bit of a laugh. It's <laughs> no, no. like, you know, I'm, 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 you know, no. I'm not like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not right. I've not written a kind of dry clinical <laughs> inspirational quotey type book like there's no illustrations of like sad clouds or anything like that it's like it's very much like there's quite a lot of dick jokes in there (laughs) (laughs) I kind of want to mix like self-care and dick jokes is is the vibe of the book that's a perfect combination (laughs) 
Sorry, I feel like I just rambled on now. No, I was no, really this getting is into amazing. No, this is it. amazing. So take me back to where you grew up and what your sort of family dynamic was like and a bit about your mum and dad. So I am from a little place called Watford. Uh, well, I was born in Watford and I lived in a town just outside it called Redmondsworth and sort of was like, my mum was one of those women that worked like 900 jobs whatever she needed to do to get food on the table is what she did she didn't have one career she was like a multi-grafter basically whereas my dad was like a black cab driver he had the black cab that was his identity like locally and in our family type thing and yes I was born um there and we lived in um my mum's flat for like the first like four years of my life or something and it was in the sort of really, uh, you know, a town called Millend, which is quite a working class area, mainly sort of council housing. And my family all still lived there. Um, and then I, I kind of quite, I don't know, I think because I was the youngest child of quite old parents. By the time I came along, you know, I've got two brothers, they're much older. I was born on my eldest brother's 21st birthday. So like they are, they're proper adults <laughs> and um and so yeah so by the time I came along my mum and dad actually had some sort of money and were like okay we're gonna move and so we moved to a village and I had a very different life to the rest of my family or to what my brothers had had and to what my parents had had you know I was like the lucky kid that went to the little village parish school and like yeah, yeah. you know my education was important and it was taken seriously and I got to do extracurricular stuff so I very much had like a working class moral outlook on the world and I came from that but I I was given opportunities and a chance to sort of I don't know kind of pursue a job or a career that that you know the rest of my family are like what do you even do <laughs> <laughs> They're like, that's not a job. We just speak into a microphone, do you? You silly. F-. Like, like they, they, you know, they're so supportive, but it is like a culture shock. Mm. And so, yeah. And then, and then my, I was sort of brought up with them and, and, and I just had the loveliest childhood, really. Like, I can't really fault it. Like, my dad was very, very good because he was a, a London black cab driver. I would go into London with him sometimes and like we'd explore and he was so good at like showing me the sticks and the bricks. He was like, you're going to, I'm going to show you all the million pound houses in like Highgate and we're going to go down like million pound roads and we're going to see like wealth. But then I'm also going to take you to like high rises in Hounslow where I've got mates who are also black cab drivers. And you're going to like, you're going to know the full spectrum of, people and privilege Mm. and different races and different backgrounds and I'm so so lucky for that I think Mm. because I think it has given me it has equipped me in a way where I can sort of like get on with more people than necessary (laughs) not not more people than necessary (laughs) because it's good to get on with everyone more people than necessary I'm just so but I just bloody fall in love with everyone um (laughs) no I don't mean it like that but but it definitely it was good because I think I wasn't as scared to leave home. I wasn't as scared to, to actually kind of branch out. And I knew I wanted to go to university. I'd never really thought when my dad died when I was 15, I thought, well, that's never going to be an option now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm just going to have to, you know, like 
get a job. Um, and I was very lucky to get a scholarship. If I hadn't got the scholarship and all my fees paid for, then I, then I don't think I would have gone. And I was so glad that I went because it definitely helped me a lot with my sexuality and mm-hmm. figuring that out because I was just around more people and very open-minded people and people that were going to help me to articulate that. Yeah. And I think it's quite, I don't know if it's a thing, but I think it's quite strange being a gay man when you've lost that same sex parent, so to speak, because mm-hmm. I just sort of felt a bit like, I don't know. I always feel like I've lost out on sort of coming out to my dad, if that makes sense. Like it's quite a strange one because I just think he would have been so great. I think he would have thought it was really fucking cool. He'd have just been like, all right, fine. Great. (laughs) Like, and I, and I, and I kind of miss having that sort of, I don't know, validation or that sense of like, you know, I suppose like care, having an older male, I guess. And that's almost why me and Ollie became very good friends because me and my brothers, when my dad died, we weren't, we really weren't that close. We didn't get any closer because of it or anything like that. Like there was such an age gap and there was a real kind of like, likability gap as well. I get on with them both now much more, but at the time I was just like, who are these two like older people that just sort of are like stress my mum out? Who are these blo- blo- men? Who are they? <laughs> but now I get on with them much better. Do you think they but, also saw you having quite a different childhood and maybe had, I don't know, com- maybe some sort of resentment towards that? Or- I don't know if it was resentment, but I think it was like a he's different type yeah. thing. You know, when I got into university, my brother, my middle brother, didn't even say well done, didn't even say goodbye. He was so anti-students. He thought students were just like lazy people that refused to get into work quick enough. He was so Mm -hmm. against it and just hated the system. He was that angry, you know, white working class type, you know. Mm -hmm. He had that stereotype, so to speak, because that's not the same of everyone. Like there were also like my aunties and uncles who were like, go you, great, but... Yeah. You know, I think, um, yeah, and, and and I guess actually it's probably, I would really like to think, and I, I genuinely believe this to be very true, that my friend Ollie, he was, he was in the year above me at uni and he was five years older. Right. So he came to uni late. He was sort of a slightly mature student and he had already lived a bit of life and he already kind of knew about the world in a way that I didn't and he was like an older brotherly figure you know there's the moment I came out to Ollie I remember it so vividly we were queuing to go on this club night out and it was like an indie disco night in a pub and we needed to get money to pay entry on the door and all of our friends had cash but me and him and so we went to this ATM and I hadn't told him for a good year of us knowing each other that I was gay. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of mentioned it like at midnight, a bit drunk. I was like, I fancy men, by the way. And he was just like, why would I give a fuck? Like, yeah. you silly gay. Like, come on. <laughs> like, you're like my brother. I don't care. I don't yeah. give a shit. Like, get 20 quid out. And stop making it all about you. <laughs> like, <laughs> which I just think fast. was the most beautiful. <laughs> yeah, come on. Get over it. You're gay. All right. We get it. Um, which was just so perfect. Yeah. It was like just the best way for him to have reacted with such sweetness. And yeah. he was like a real lad's lad. He was a real contrast to me. I don't, I don't think I'll ever have a friend like him again. Like he loved football. He loved Newcastle United. He loved like 
watching football. He loved hip hop. He lo- like he was just a very different person to me in terms of some of those core identifiers. Mm. But as people and as as and our moral outlook and our like our what we felt about the world was so similar. Yeah. Like it was like having a brother in that sense. So I'm I almost feel like you know I feel very the 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 book's quite strange because you know I. I kind of describe it as like, I lost my dad at 15. I lost my a close friend at, at, to suicide at 21. And then I lost a pair of Nike Air Max trainers at 25 on the Northern line. Because in my mind, I'm like, yeah, like I kind of want it to feel, I don't, I don't want it to feel like an abnormal experience. I'm like, okay, yeah, sometimes in life, it's normal for someone to go through grief early. That's normal. Because that is life. It might not be what the majority go through, but it's still something that happens and it's still something that shapes you and I actually feel incredibly grateful I feel incredibly lucky to have had both my dad and Ollie in my life they've taught me a lot even if a lot of trauma has been attached to them to losing them having them has been so incredible and I and I have to sort of remind myself to feel very lucky for that how do you think that it being part of your career how do you think that has changed your relationship to your dad's loss or to grief itself? Um, I personally absolutely hate it mm. um, in the sense of, and this is something that has been a slightly tricky part of the book. Um, I don't want to be boiled down to kid who's been through shit. Like, I don't like that being my identity. If you read the whole book from cover to cover, you get more than that. Like, I'm not an X Factor sob story. I've not come on to sing a song and be like, I'm doing this for my dad. I'm like, no, I'm a talented comedian. I'm I'm good at making things funny. I know that sounds a bit arrogant, but sometimes I have to just like say that to people. I'm like, yeah. I actually like, I'm, I write things that are jokes. Funny. Like, I'm not, uh, yeah, stop, I'm stop making funny. me sad. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, BBC Three. Um, but yeah, and so like some of the press for the book I've really struggled with because mm. I think they've just gone top line, trauma, 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 yeah. sub story, sub story. It's like yeah. reading about myself in Take a Break magazine or something. Like yeah. it's very <laughs> strange. I've got a profile coming out the weekend that I'm just not going to read because I know that it's going to be like... They, that's the angle they've gone down whereas for me it's much more nuanced than that I don't want that to be my identity my identity is much more like being able to make it light and and be able to find like the silliness and the and the humor and the positivity in those experiences but um yeah I, I, in terms of it affecting my relationship with my dad I mean I do find it strange sometimes I ask myself like would I be doing this now if he was still here? Like, what would I be? Who would I be? Yeah. Who like what would I have done? Would I be happy? Would I be miserable? Yeah. Would it? Did it release me? Did it help me? Did it give me an emotional intelligence that I would have needed to have got through being gay? Like, like I, I really. It's so mad to think about those hypotheticals. Like, I know how my yeah. life could have been completely different. I think I'd, I think if my dad was still here, I'd have, I'd have been I'd have like become a failed like musician because <laughs> me and my dad we loved music. Music was the thing that connected us the most. Like yeah. music runs throughout the book, and I think I would have become like a shit like enemy <laughs> one hit wonder. <laughs> I think with my dad in particular, 
he just always said to me, make sure you get a job you love. Like, just try your hardest. I feel like the best thing I can do for him is to have a job that I, like, find just great. That is, like, part of my identity, but in a really positive way. Because he was a black cab driver for, like, 27 years. He grew to hate it. He was just sat in a box all the time. And I think with him, you know, he was from, like, uh, a working-class council estate background he never felt like he had many options, you know, he just, and I actually think my dad was incredibly clever, was incredibly bright and intelligent, but just didn't feel like he would ever have one of those jobs because of the boundaries of, of which, you know, we are told in life, you'll do something like this because you're this or, you know, and so I think for him, he was just really tried to put it into me that I didn't have to just accept work as just like, a, a, a thing that I just had to do he was just like work hard do well and just do something that you love every day or else life is a fucking slog and so I definitely think that has always stuck with me like that is sort of fatherly advice but very much felt to me like friendly advice it, he was just sort of like mate don't do something you hate because I do and I do it because I love you and I love your mom and I love like our, our family and we need to like put food on the table but also it's the worst so you know I think that was a huge motivator but and I think the turning 15 I you know my dad died like two months after I turned 15 or less than that and um and so I did just sort of go, I feel like I did just jump four years ahead into adulthood really it, I, I think a touch of it was probably that like you know you're a man now type thing but probably more so than that probably more so than that was was just this feeling of like okay how the hell am I going to find anything that anybody my age is going through remote how am I going to resonate with that remotely like obviously I'm still a teenager obviously I'm still going through puberty obviously I'm still like having those first discoveries but also like I've discovered something completely fucked up about the world that none of you as my friends and my peers can understand like I'm the only one so when you're the only one that goes through an experience like that you don't you 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 find it very difficult to like kind of like engage in the frivolity of teenage like being a teenager of you know like caring about the tiny shit that you know in the grand scheme of things isn't at all important Mm. it kind of gives you like an accelerated wisdom I think or at least a perception on life and I actually think I was probably always quite like a wise soul I don't I think I I kind of you know I was always a little bit like that anyway but um but yeah I think you have to to you just have to face life differently because your challenges are different we, I was very worried that my mum was going to lose our house for quite a lot of it because the breadwinner had gone and, you know, it was difficult because you're like, okay, how financially are we going to cope? How emotionally are we going to cope? Um, but yeah, but but sometimes, I don't know, all of these things, I, I, I moan about them all the time. Um, I do do the X Factor sub story, woe is me, like... I didn't have a teenage years like my friends didn't. I then didn't get to really enjoy my early 20s because like everything that happened with Ollie. And then like I, you know, definitely was the first of my friends to 
get quite successful in the parameters of which people measure success as in like I was making stuff for Radio 4, I was selling out venues, I was doing a BBC 3, like I was doing the things that people would denote as success. But I fucking hated them. Like I really hated making the BBC 3 documentary. It's the biggest regret of my life. Yeah, yeah. It just was, because I guess the reason why is that I had just studied journalism and documentary making and I would have made a really, well, what I made, what I had made with Good Grief, my first show, was like a live comedy show meets a documentary because I played so many films and I kind of I felt like I was really proud of it because I'd made something very authentic and like very sweet but also something quite artful and like tasteful whereas BBC three documentaries you know you're there for the formula like they want you to cry at one point they want you to be the poster child of whatever issue it is they want to get across and however they want to edit it is however they edit it like I was incredibly grateful for the opportunity and I still am However, that is not a documentary that I would have made. They kind of, I think they thought I was just some sort of like YouTuber presenter who didn't have any idea on the editorial constructs of a documentary. And I was like, I've literally just made a documentary, but I just did it as a live show and I pieced it together in a different way, but I've just studied it and you're not using me in a journalistic sense, you're using me as a sob story because that's what is on vogue right now is to have a sad man who's gay crying at his friend's grave and put that in a little trailer on Facebook and get millions of views and ride off the sadness. And I'm like, that's not me. I don't know how I became presented like that because I'm not, that's just not my vibe. Um, yeah. So I'm there was like I, ticking boxes sort of thing. Yeah, completely. And I should have, you know what, with hindsight, I should have known that. I should have known that, you know, I was really young. I was like 22 when they approached me. And you know what, I learned a lot from it. And, you know, I'm now, I write for TV now, which is my favourite. I do sort of scripted stuff. That's where my energy goes into. And I love it. And maybe that wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. had I not learned some of the mistakes that I made or that were made on the other project. So I'm very grateful for it. If anybody at BBC Three is listening, thank you. However, it was also like really tough. And I don't regret it, but I definitely regret perhaps some of the ways in which we confronted grief and mental health because they just felt bandwagony. They didn't feel as authentic as they could have been. But then that's life, isn't it? Like, and sometimes I hate to sort of like sometimes I'm like, oh God, I just wish I had a dad <laughs> because then I, you just have someone I could like have as a sounding board and someone to give me advice and someone to just like, I don't know, tell me it's all, all right or like just, you know, guide me in that way. So many of my friends just speak to their dad as soon as anything goes wrong and I just don't have that. And sometimes, and I'm not sure about you, whether you have that or, you know, or many people listening, but sometimes that is just the fucking battle. That's sadder to me than anything sometimes, that I just don't have that person looking out for me. Um, and so, yeah, but the only way that you can cope with that and live with that is to, and this is like, I oh God, it sounds like I'm sort of segueing at the end of the podcast to bring it back to my book, but <laughs> bringing it back to my book, um, the only way you get through that is like friendship. It, it, it is that it's like finding those people who you relate to those people who have also because this is why I sort of made that point about like you and me losing parents you know 
as as children and teenagers the reason it is normal is because it happens and it happens all the bloody time like and my friend cecilia who's an incredible poet who you should definitely get on the podcast as well here's another oh, guest really? that I lined up for you yeah, she's class, a, a playwright yeah. and a poet called cecilia knapp and she's oh i know her oh yeah i don't know her i've seen her perform yeah she's great yeah <laughs> she became my friend because you know she was um 10 when her mum died and all of a sudden she was just living with her dad and her dad moved them away from their hometown and she was just living in brighton with her dad having a very different relationship to him than she had before and i was like oh wow like you get it you get the fear you get the the anxiety you get the feeling of the loss but then you've also got the drive and you have got the ambition mm-hmm. to like let it accelerate you into doing something you love and in, and essentially by doing that loving life yeah. god it sounds so like live laugh love yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so gift shoppy but like do you know what i mean you've got to use it you've got to or else you just stay oh, you really do i just miss him i mean i know that sounds yeah. like come on sometimes i'm like come on it's been 12 years stop it but I just do I just like I miss him as a person I miss him as the role I miss him being able to like help fix things or calm my brothers down or just just be around I just miss him and I and, and I've and I've accepted the fact that I always will like there's never going to be a moment I don't and but but then again there's something beautiful in that how amazing that there is somebody who I met I had in my life who created me who left in the worst circumstances but left me with like the the sort of best like memories and upbringing like I can't I would be a real fool to just like completely I don't know waste that or to not remember him, or to not want to miss him. Like, I want to miss him, if that makes sense. I mm-hmm. want to miss him every single day, because that, for me, is, like, important. That's, like, the ground that I put my feet on, like, is to wake up and miss him. And that's, like, yeah, I don't know. That feels to me to be something, like, to be cherished. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Look at us. I, I want that. to miss him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's ba- this is basically like the book. The book is me saying something really sad and then just like laughing. Did you just afterwards. quote the book? No, I didn't at all. I know. I fucking wish I had. I wish we'd done this interview while I was writing it. That was really fucking profound. <laughs> That was, that was so <laughs> profound. I'm fucking flea bag right now. I don't know how. All of a sudden, I'm like, I want to. I want to wake up every day and I want to miss you. Fucking blimey. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But I mean it still. I'm still. I'm kind of laughing at that yeah. meaning. But that isn't that like the. Isn't that the joy of it though? Is that you can laugh it. You can mm. feel it. You you know that means that you've accepted it in many ways. I think. Yeah, definitely, because you're okay to miss him. Yeah, 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 I want to. Yeah, 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 100%. God, I (laughs) I bloody wish. Why didn't I speak to you while I was writing the fucking book? I'll do it for the paperback. The paperback comes out next year. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. If your dad was listening to this right now, what would you want to say to him? Hmm. 
people normally pause this long? What would I want to say to him? I'd tell him that he should have got me tested for dyspraxia because I'm so fucking clumsy <laughs> and I do blame that on him because he just used to be like, Jack's just clumsy and I'm not. I've, I'm actually like cognitive like, like I, I actually struggle to function sometimes I'd literally be like stop passing it off as I'm clumsy I needed help and you didn't give me it I'd have a go at him if, if he was listening now I'd be like you seriously needed to you needed to sort me out a bit more when it comes to like actual like parent he was very good at bringing me up as a person as a character yeah. but he was quite crap at looking after me sometimes <laughs> I'd be like you should have helped me more basically um because I couldn't even tie my shoelaces until I was like 19 <laughs> like I've got no like functioning skills like I, I will never be able to drive I don't think because I'll just like my spatial awareness is terrible yeah and I come from a family of drivers I mean literally of like drivers. my family the professional <laughs> like my auntie's head of like North Dorset buses or some shit my uncle drives a skip lorry my dad was a black cab driver like everybody yeah. drives apart from me I'm just stuck on the Victoria line like <laughs> oh, it's fine I'll just the, the, my car is an oyster card like <laughs> Yeah, I'd probably genuinely, if he was listening, I'd I'd be like, you failed there. I'd be like, thank you for everything else, but also <laughs> pull your socks up. Oh, well, Jack, thank you so much for talking oh, to thanks me. thanks so much. So fun. Thank you for having me. And I will post you a book. I would literally love that so much. Thank you so much for listening to my episode with the incredible Jack Rook. Oh, he's one of those people who I really want as my friend. And Jack, you are amazing. And thank you so much for coming on and bringing actually just a wonderful injection of humour and life into what's often such a intense subject for so many to listen to. And I know you hate this sort of grief um, identity tag. And I mean, to be fair, so do I. <laughs> But, you know, it's a good, it's, you're, you're doing good with your knowledge about grief and your wonderful sense of humour and ability to basically make everybody that you meet laugh and fall in love with you. So thank you so much, Jack. You're wonderful. And I cannot wait to read your book. I got it in the post the other day and I'm so excited. So Cheer the Fuck Up is out now. It's been out since the 30th of July. Get your hands on it. Jack is incredible and um, yeah you probably fell in love with him just as much as I did and can't wait to see what he's got up his sleeve next if you've been affected at all by anything that's come up in the episode I advise two places where you can visit the first is Julia Samuel's website www.juliasamuel.co.uk the other place is www.untangle.life which is for people experiencing grief it connects you to a like-minded community and experts such as therapists, lawyers, financial coaches, and just helps you make loss a little bit less lonely and overwhelming. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or night.